Our Father, once again, we're thankful that You have provided salvation for us, that You have become incarnate, and that Your Son has walked the face of this earth, has done His momentous salvation work, and is now seated at Your right hand. We ask that the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from both You and the Son, would teach our hearts tonight, in Christ's name, Amen. By the way, a good um, example of God's design, the snowflakes out here. I remember as we were walking in, we were talking about the, the snow, and it re- made me think of back when I was in college and I was studying meteorology, um, <clears throat> one of the world's pioneers in the application of radar to weather was uh, Dr. Pauline Austin from MIT. And um, it was kind of neat because um, one of the benefits you get when you actually can take a class with a world-renowned person is you get to know them as a person, a small class. And, um, you know, you read about these people, but it's kind of neat just to know one and uh, just that they're normal people. <laughs> um, sometimes you read about them so much you don't think they're normal people. Anyway, one of her things was she'd stop class if it was snowing and she'd make all the, all the guys, including the grad students, get out on the roof of this building. It's about 10 or 12-story tall building. And she get out there and she always had her fur coat. And she said this is the best, uh, the best vehicle for studying s- snow crystals. And she'd get these snow crystals on her arm. She'd just hold her arm out there in the fur coat and catch the snow crystals. And, um, and then proceed in this tremendous way she had of going on and on and on about the structure of these crystals. And it turns out that the way, if you look at snow crystals underneath a microscope, and it's very hard to do that because obviously they try to melt, so there's all kinds of techniques that men have devised to try and get these things so you can look at them. And um, if you look at the snow crystal, it turns out there are three or four different kinds of crystals and the different families of crystals. Of course, each flake has got its own uniqueness, but like tonight out here, it's very wet. So what you see as snowflake is actually probably 10 or 15 all clumped together. But there's about four or five different families of crystals, and each one of those crystals has a shape that's dictated by the temperature and the humidity of the air in which it was formed. So if you take all the crystals, each one has a written biography of its generation inside that crystal. And you can, if you're really astute, you can get these crystals and decide what's going on up there, uh, what kind of humidity, how high the crystals were when they formed, um, whether they came close to, like tonight, um, a lot of them are very wet because the air is so warm now near, near the Earth's surface. But uh, it's a neat illustration because you get into these things and you realize the more you get into them, there's just this wonderful, tremendous design. I mean, everywhere you go, God's handiwork is there. And it's so sad that in the average science course in school where probably more than any other place on the campus, you're encountering design, 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 design. But you don't have people, you know, pointing this out instead of masking it over. Really kind of uh, demeaning. I wonder how God feels about that. Um, let's turn in our notes. We're gonna, I want to review tonight because this is the last time we're going to be on chapter 2 and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine associated with that birth, the hypostatic union. Because next week, as you can see by the notes handing out, we'll be even on a more difficult subject, which is the Trinity. <coughs> but there's a connection and you'll see the notes that we handed out tonight are an, are an appendix. They don't belong in the sequence of chapters because 
we go through the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. And this is to be an appendix. But logically speaking, I don't want to leave the Godness and the humanness of Christ without going to the Trinity because historically this is where the Trinity debates arose in connection with the person of Christ. So, back on page 37, a moment, those are all the heresies. Uh, if there's not one lesson in all this, uh, please learn something about history that in the flow of time there are very, very few basic ideas. There's only a very, very few basic ideas. And the tragedy in a lot of our education is we get everybody focused on details, 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 and nobody backs off and says, now wait a minute, whoa, just hold it right here. Let's look at the big picture, what's going on. And in this case, we have six different heresies that have recycled again and again in church history. They don't just come and go. They keep coming back again, primarily because people forget that they were refuted. And they come back and then we have, the church has to go through the whole thing all over again. So, usually when you run into a problem with Scripture or some, some doctrinal problem, if you go back 2,000 years, somewhere over that 2,000 year church history, you will see that this came up before. This was discussed, it was prayed about, people studied the Scriptures about this thing and went through the whole nine yards. So, when we come to these things, we want to just have a little humility that the Holy Spirit might have possibly taught someone before we came along. And if he did, we might possibly learn from those people. And that's the great thing about learning through church history. Church history can be very beneficial that way. All right. The chart then reminds us that in all what we've studied about the person of Jesus Christ, the problem inevitably came up that their basic God concept was not biblical, that they thought it was biblical. They hastily thought about God and then started tacking on the data that they, we have in the New Testament about Jesus. And they wound up messed up. And it didn't work. And it didn't work because the basic idea was wrong. It was like they were pinning all these things onto the structure, and when they got through pinning it on, it looked like a mess. And that's what happened. For four centuries, the doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ was a mess. And as we said over the past few Thursday nights, at times, the heretics controlled the church. The true doctrine of Jesus Christ was many centuries held as a minority position. And we can thank the Holy Spirit for finally bringing it to the majority position. So, that's the first thing we want to remember. Now, there's something else we want to go back to. If you go back to page uh, 37, uh, 34, even back before that, uh, I w because we're going to get into this again with the Trinity, so that's why I kind of want to be sure we remember all this. You remember back on page 30, we said that there are certain evidences of the deity of Christ. And in all the 400 years of debate, these evidences came up again and again. Now, if you turn in the Old Testament, uh, before you do that, notice on page 30, one category of evidences is that there are two Old Testament streams of revelation. So, in the Old Testament, preparatory to the revelation of Jesus Christ, there were two themes. One was that God's 
home is with us, with man. And that's Emmanuel, the Emmanuel theme. And an example of that, uh, we gave Genesis 3.8, example of that before, but one of the verses we mentioned in the notes that I want you to see is Exodus 3.13 and 14. Because this passage, Exodus 3.13 and 14, is the place, the classic location in the Old Testament for the name of God. When this strange name, Jehovah, we call it in the English Bible, but his name was not Jehovah. It was something like Yahweh, though that's not even sure. The Hebrew just has Y-H-W-H, and they left it that way, refused to pronounce the word, lost the verbs, the vowels, don't, didn't remember the vowels, so nobody now knows what the vowels were. And what's happened is that uh, Jehovah is actually, they took uh, E. O-A out of another word and stuck in here and that's how they got Jehovah. So Jehovah is kind of an artificial thing. I'm always amused to remember that when the Jehovah's Witnesses come by the door. Exodus 3, 13 and 14, here is where Moses meets God. And here is where God defines his own name. This isn't Moses defining the name, it's God defining his name. Now you notice what it says. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. Now, he's using the verb to be, which is this verb. This is the noun form of the verb in Hebrew, to be. And what apparently is going on here is that this word is meant to convey that I am understood with you. So it's not just I am but I am with you. Because remember what's going on here, the burning bush. And the burning bush is a picture of Israel and Egypt under pressure, temptations, the fiery trials. And God speaks from within the fire. So it's a picture that I am with you in your troubles. What's significant is that that is this Emmanuel theme. God is with us. That's what his name is. The central name of the Old Testament means I am with you. Incidentally, and just a footnote here, does this anybody remember a passage in the New Testament where it is said, Behold, I am with you always? Matthew 28. Now, you see how rich that expression is if you know Exodus 3? So you can read Matthew 28, and if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you don't get it. It sounds like just a closing thing. Well, I'm with you. You know, kind of like you've... Aunt so-and-so's uh, gone down south someplace. You're not going to see her for six, six years or something. And I'm with you kind of thing. No, no, no. It's more than that. When the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am with you always to the end of the age, he was deliberately using imagery from the divine name. Okay. So, we have the two streams. One, God with, you, with us. And the other one is... The world longs for an ideal ruler, a human being, a king. And as an example of that theme, you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Here's um, one among the many passages cited in the notes, but again, just to get a little referencing from the text. In Isaiah 11, 
Isaiah the prophet is looking forward to the culmination of history, to the righting of all wrongs. And it's a typical blending of this ideal king and the resolution of good and evil and the end of history and the beginning of peace. Then a shoot will bring from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, faithfulness the belt about his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion, the fatling together, and so forth and so on. That's the millennial kingdom. So that's the image out of the Old Testament of the second theme of Revelation. There will be an ideal ruler. He's a full human being, the seed of Jesse. So, stream number one and stream number two. We said that in Psalm 110 and other places, these two streams seem to approach each other. They don't exactly touch, but they approach each other. So, the basic structure of the Old Testament Revelation is a setup for the person of Jesus Christ. Then we said, for going further in the notes, there was a second category of evidences, and that was on page 33. This is undeniable and powerful. I don't know how anybody can get around these things who denies the deity of Christ. You can't do it that way. If you want to deny the deity of Christ, the only logical thing you can do is say that the New Testament was idolatrous and an arrogant uh, pseudo-religion that uh, denied the heart of Judaism. Because in, these, in this section, and you remember the table on page 34, we have Old Testament citations quoted in the New Testament that in the Old Testament refer to Jehovah, but when they're cited in the New Testament are applied to the person of Jesus Christ, clearly identifying the person of Jesus Christ with the Jehovah of the Old Testament. Now, if that isn't a claim to deity, tell me what is. You know? <laughs> um, you can't have it any stronger than that. These are Jews quoting Jewish scripture in a monotheistic environment, daring to identify their human leader with a God of the Old Testament. Excuse me. How do we, else do we define this? So this is a powerful category of evidences. And it doesn't hit you until you go through the table and you read that Old Testament text, and then you read the New Testament text, and you read the context of the Old Testament text, and you read the context of the New Testament text, and you say, wow, look at this. Then you had the third category of evidences on page 34. Not only were Old Testament citations applied to Jesus, but now works that God alone did are said to be done by Jesus. So we have a Christ for God substitution in historic roles. And one of the primary evidences in that second paragraph on page 34 is that Christ is said to forgive sins, not pronounce forgiveness of sins. A priest would pronounce forgiveness of sins. But a priest couldn't say, I forgive you for sinning against me. I mean, you go punch somebody else out and I say, I forgive you. You see how discordant that is? That's stupid. 
That doesn't connect at all. Only the person you've wronged can forgive you. Well, then how come Jesus is forgiving people transgressions of the Torah? Doesn't that imply that he must be the one that they sinned against? So, those three powerful evidences, the two streams of evidences, the New Testament substitutions uh, in their Old Testament citations, and the role switch between Christ and Jehovah. Powerful, powerful evidences of the deity of Christ. Then we went on and we studied how the arguments went on for 400 years and we said this, that if you summarize all those arguments, here's one set of arguments. Jesus Christ has got to be full God or if he isn't fully deity, then we're worshipping in an idolatrous fashion because we're worshipping Jesus. If Jesus isn't God, then we're violating the first commandment. Okay? You can't have any worship of Jesus. And the point is that whenever angels are accidentally worshipped in the New Testament, John the Apostle falls down and, and uh, Peter and some of the guys fall down, and they, what, the correction is all, whoa, hey, we're the same stuff as you guys. Don't worship us. So every time there's an accidental worship of an angel, it's cut off immediately by the angel. Now the question is, why didn't Jesus cut it off? Why, when people worshipped him, didn't he cut it off like the angels cut it off? Why did he let this happen? And that was one of the arguments that that won the day in the church. If Jesus Christ is not fully God, and yet we worship Jesus Christ, then we're worshipping that which is less than God, and we're in violation of the first commandment. Another argument that went on during that time was that if Jesus Christ isn't fully God, and I claim to have eternal life by knowing Christ, then I don't know God. If Christ isn't God, then knowing Christ doesn't give me knowledge of God. If I have a personal relationship with Christ and Christ is not God, then I don't have a personal relationship with God. So I'm not saved. And that's why Athanasius got up in his day and he said to the church, look, if Jesus Christ is not God, then we are not saved. Period. That was the point that won the day. Then the second point, the second category of these arguments was that if Jesus Christ wasn't fully man, if he wasn't complete and genuine humanity, then there's no substitutionary death. Then angels don't die and the whole crucifixion becomes an illusion unless it's a crucifixion of a full human being. So if you deny the deity of Christ, you lose the knowledge of God and you wind up in idolatry. If you, if you compromise the humanity of Christ, you wind up blowing away the cross. And you blow away something else in the process. You destroy the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in the New Testament it says, we have a high priest that can be affected with our infirmities. In other words, when we go take a petition before the throne of God, we don't have a deaf ear up there. We've got a guy who's been there and knows it. So, if you deny the humanity of Christ, you wipe out the crucifixion and you wipe out his priesthood. So, there's some very, very serious consequences to going in any one of those directions. Now, finally, we came last time, page 43, to the Council of Chalcedon. I didn't put the date in the notes, I don't think. Yes, I did. 451, bottom page 42. So, it shows you 451, so I really shouldn't have said six centuries actually four centuries, 
to deal with this doctrine. But it shows you, look how long it took the church to settle this issue. 400 years. Why? Because it's such a foundational issue. It is hard. And the Council of Chalcedon is footnote 31. And you want to remember that footnote 31 when you read in our hymn book, because our hymn book doesn't have the Council of Chalcedon in it. Our hymn book only has the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And we've gone through that enough times, so you know in the Apostles' Creed it simply says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. And then it goes right on, who was suffered and died under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and blah, blah, blah. But then it goes on in the Nicene Creed to say, after I believe in Jesus Christ, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being one of the Father. Remember all those extra words in there? That was to fortify the full deity of Christ over against Arianism in 325. Now, in 451, the church said this, Following the Holy Fathers, we unanimously teach one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, known in two natures, without confusion, without conversion, without severance, without division. See all those without, 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 without? That was to deal with monophysitism and Nestorianism and all those isms that were trying to mix what? What after, after the church got beat around on the deity and humanity, and they said, all right, all right, whoa, we got two natures now. Now what did the church start to do with the two natures? Mix them. Remember the vinegar and water illustration? They mixed them together. And that would have violated the creator-creature distinction. So they couldn't do that either. So there's a big argument about that. And so that's what these words are protecting against. All those without, 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 withouts are, you might put a little margin reference there, they're in that creed to separate the creator from the creature natures of Christ. They kept those two natures separate. Don't mix them. The distinction of nature. See that? The distinction of natures, plural. Being in no wise abolished by their union. But the peculiarity of each nature being maintained. That is, the creator remained the creator and the creature remained the creature. And both concurring in one person in hypostasis. The hypostasis is, is substance. And that's the word which we get, the hypostatic union. The union of the creator and the creature in one person. We summarize it in that bold capital letter thing there that you hear me say again and again. That is a summary of the Chalcedon Creed. And each of those phrases is important. Lots and lots of thought went into them. Undiminished deity. United with true humanity. Without confusion. In one person. Forever. You have to have all parts of that sentence. Let's count them. Undiminished deity, number one. United in one person, number two. True humanity, number three. Without confusion, number four. Forever, number five. There are five elements to doctrine in that one sentence. Five elements. And you've got to have all five or something breaks down. The cross goes away. The priesthood goes away. Salvation goes away. Something else goes away. But to be fully nourished, we have to confess all five of those things together. All right, so that's where we've come with the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Tonight, we want to deal with the four implications of this doctrine. We want to draw out, so what? Now what, now what have we got if we state the Scripture truth this way? Well, there are four, there may be a lot more implications. I'm just taking four. The first one 
is that the creator-creature distinction is eternally fundamental. This distinction of the creator-creature that we've made such a point over year after year, month after month, on Thursday nights, going over this thing and over it and over it. And I know those of you who have hung in here are, are tired of seeing this, but we really shouldn't be tired of seeing it because it's the truth. Create a creature distinction. What, is the, what separates the Bible from every other system of thought? What is the one thing that separates it? Creator-creature distinction. All pagan thought smears that difference and makes God, angels, men, supermen, rocks, molecules, dogs, cats, the cows, all part of one great continuity of being. We're all part of this universe kind of thing. God's inside the universe, part of it. And it's either one system of thought or it's the other system of thought. And nobody, folks, has ever come up with a third position. There's no third middle ground here. It's either this or it's that. And you can separate every thought system, every philosopher, every, per, every thinker. There's, you can't sit on that fence. You've got to go this way or you've got to go that way. And you'll notice we say in the creator-creature distinction, everlasting distinctions. They don't go away. Remember? What does the Chalcedon Creed say? When these two natures came together as they had never come together before in the history of the universe, they came together at the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And when they came together in one person, they never mixed. They remained separate. And if there was a time for them to mix, it would have been then. But Christ is one person and mysteriously He is God and he is also man. He's God-man, but he's not a humanized God, and he's not a deified man. His natures remain distinct. So we have that truth affirmed. Now you say, well, gee, that sounds nice and theoretical. What practical benefit does that have? Well, let me take you to a verse that a lot of Christians misinterpret in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians um, 13. And it's because they don't think about what it is they're saying when they say these things. 1 Corinthians 13. It's a verse. We often, we familiar, many of us are familiar with it. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abides faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. People have often inferred from verse 12 that somehow when we go to heaven, we become omniscient. Not so. Besides, if verse 12, now we see in a mirror dimly and then face to face is something different there, if that's not the second advent, then that interpretation is wrong anyway. If, for example, what Paul has in mind here is something other than the second advent, and he, and he may have the second advent in mind, I'm just saying there are many godly men who hold that this is not talking about the second advent. But verse 12, whatever it means, cannot mean that we become omniscient. Why? That would mean we become God. So we can knock off that interpretation, whatever it means. It can't mean we inherit omniscience. Well, let's see if we can think about the creator-creature distinction in terms of our Christian life and take some practical applications. 
God has his attributes. He is sovereign. He is righteous. He is loving. He is eternal. He is omniscient, omnipresent. He is immutable. Now, he's all these things. I should have this over here, and I should have omniscient over there to make it the personal attributes. As human beings, we have corresponding attributes. Why is that? Because we're made in God's image. The dogs and cats don't have this. Human beings do. We have volition, our cho- chooser. Corresponds to God's chooser. God's chooser is called sovereignty. Our chooser is called responsibility or volition. God is righteous and holy. What corresponds to that? A sense that he has put inside us called conscience. Until we destroy it, short-circuit it, callous it over, but we're born with conscience. Then we have love, and we have something that corresponds to his omniscience, which is knowledge. Now, let's keep this diagram in mind, and let's go to some verses in Scripture that deal with practical everyday problems and see if we don't get some insight this way. Let's first turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Prophet Isaiah wrote this in a time of crisis. The nation was falling apart. People were wandering around trying to get a foundation for something in their lives. They were in danger of being sucked up into a pagan culture. Their land was about to be defeated. It's a sad day when a nation disintegrates. And the generation to whom Isaiah wrote saw their homeland disintegrate. And it disintegrated not because of external military powers, though God sent those. They really disintegrated because spiritually they rebelled against the king of the nation. King of the nation said, you don't, want, you don't want to be in my kingdom? Don't be in my kingdom. Go ahead. You, want to, you like paganism? Go take a vacation 70 years. See how you like it. Well, that was the generation that, that was told these words. And you can see the Holy Spirit working through the prophet Isaiah trying to get these people to, who are going to shortly face a catastrophe in their personal life. Many of them are not going to survive that catastrophe. They're going to be killed. They're going to be raped. They're going to be beaten. They're going to see their children killed before their eyes. And this is the generation that he's talking to. So he's saying, guys, before the crisis comes, get something straight. Put your trust where it belongs. And so God is speaking here. And he says in verse 21 of Isaiah, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared from you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And he goes on and on and on talking about himself. Who is God and what is he like? Then... We come down to verse 25. And here's a challenge. Because remember, they lived in an idolatrous generation. God asks a question in verse 25, a challenge. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, said the Holy One. Now, what do we said is always true of pagan thought. Remember? Go back to this thing again. When we said that in pagan thought, you have a smearing of the nature and gods and man. And so people begin to develop analogies between God and man. Haven't we all read mythologies? You know, Achilles' heel, which by the way, Achilles' heel, heel. Does that recall something from Scripture? See? Achilles' heel. Doesn't that remind you of Genesis 3? See, a lot of these myths are nothing more than depravity operating on truth. You think of these myths. Myths can become very exciting studies if you think of Pandora's box. Here's this female, and she opens a box, and everything goes to pot. Well, what's that a picture of? 
that isn't a picture of Eve, I don't know what is. So you can go into all these myths and you can see, wow, that's right. That myth has a kernel of truth under it. It's under a lot of garbage, but where did the garbage come from? The fallen flesh of us. That's what we do to truth. Every time you look at a myth, think of it. It's what we have done with truth. And you go to the Bible and you get the true story, then you read a myth and you see the difference between the Bible and the myth. And that tells you what sin does, intellectually. How screwed up our thoughts are because of sin. Well, the creator creature always wanted to make God equal to something. So God cuts it off right here and he says, Who shall you then liken me that I should be his equal? I'm not equal to anything. I'm over everything. I am the creator. And there are only two levels of being, the creator and the creature. I'm not on the same level as Baal and your little priests. Then he says, and what this is, this is um, a challenge to look at God's attributes. So watch it as we read verse 26, 27, 28, 29, 30. Count how many attributes you personally observe in the text. Okay, let's go. Verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. Go ahead. Go out at night and look up. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Two attributes at least there. What are they? O-O. His omniscient, because he knows everything. He calls them all by name. And what else that holds him there? His power. So you've got omniscience and omnipotence in verse 26. See what God's doing? He's saying, just take a look at me, folks. Look at me, he says. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God attribute eternality. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. Attribute, oh, omnipotence. He's never tired. His understanding, and this is where we want to look critically tonight, his understanding is what? It's inscrutable, it's incomprehensible. What's that? Attribute, omniscience. God is omniscient. So, his understanding is inscrutable. No matter, he can tell us a lot of things that are on his mind, but this attribute here of omniscience is never to be confused with our attribute of knowledge. Our attribute of knowledge is a finite version of that, but we can never grasp God's viewpoint. We can have pieces of it. Peace here, peace there, peace somewhere else. And that's true in eternity. We're not going to become omniscient in eternity. Don't worry, it won't be boring. But because we'll have all eternity to learn. Every day, something to learn, something to learn, something to learn, something to learn, something to learn about it. And go on forever and ever and ever because it's an infinite pool of, of knowledge. His understanding is inscrutable. His gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. There is what he's saying. He says, I give strength to you. Your human strength is weak. But my power, I'm never tired I have all power and I give might to them who increase. It's a great promise, personal promise here. Though youths grow weary and tired, the vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. See, there's the element of trust. Those who wait for the Lord shall gain strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Not because they become God. 
Verse 31 is not teaching that those who trust the Lord become omnipotent. It says they can run this way, though, because they feed off of omnipotence. They are motivated. God energizes. God helps. He reaches down and helps us. All right, that's the Christian understanding of this interplay between the God's nature and human nature. Now, in his humanity, what did the Lord Jesus do here? Now, just think. Did he perfectly trust the Father? Yes, he did. All right, let's apply this to Christ. Verse 29. He gives strength to the weary. Who Him who lacks mighty increases power. Remember the temptations of Jesus in Matthew 4? See how Christ utilized this Old Testament principle? It is a faith resting in the God who was His creator. Though youths grow weary and tired, those who wait for the Lord, they will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. A wonderful, wonderful promise here. It's a great one to put on a three-by-five card and memorize. Excellent, excellent promise. Now, let's come to the New Testament and watch the New Testament after the Incarnation say exactly the same thing as Isaiah 40. So, turn to Philippians chapter 4. And again, we want to, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7... Let's look at the attributes again. Train and discipline ourselves to observe the text. And in Philippians 4, verse 6, a great promise too, by the way, be anxious for nothing. Now, how many times do I have to have that knocked through my head? Be anxious for nothing. At least two, three times a day I, I need that. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So, as far as you read so far, verse 6 is, is an admonition. It's an imperative. Don't do this. Do this instead. By the way, when you read imperatives in the New Testament, that's another thing to observe. It's helped me a lot over the years. Is the Bible, when it hits you with a negative, doesn't leave you there. There's always a positive. He never says, don't do that, without saying, do this. And you'll find if you do this, you get the power to not do that. But if you sit and get a fixation on what the Bible says, you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you can't do this, you get resentful. Christianity doesn't work for me. And all the rest of the argument comes up. Well, that, that totally misunderstands. The Bible, when it tells us don't do this, always tells us, but do this instead. It's a substitution. It's not an elimination of something. It's a substitution of something. And here's an example. Instead of being anxious, we're supposed to be praying. We're not supposed to just lie down and do nothing. If we're going to be anxious, you can't stop being anxious by trying to stop being anxious. It doesn't work. We all know that. You worry about something. Something's on your mind. You don't sleep. It keeps going around in your mind. You can be walking out doing nothing and it comes to your mind. You can be out gardening and it comes to your mind. You can't keep it out of your mind. So, God knows that. And so, that's why He says, be anxious of nothing, but replace that when that happens, with prayer. It tells you exactly how to cope with it. It's all free. It doesn't have $75 an hour counseling fee. Being anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, which means you can't really get there if you're not right with the Lord, let your request be made known unto God. Now watch verse 7. Here come the attributes. And the peace of God, which passes all comprehension shall protect your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The result of the praying is that the peace of God comes, 
But the peace that comes is omniscience. Now, let's take that apart. Let's unravel this a little bit. Why do you suppose Paul says the peace of God is incomprehensible? How does an incomprehensible peace of God help me when I'm worrying about something? Well, here's how it works. When I'm worrying about something, I've got this situation and I'm trying to hit it from all sides with my solutions. And the problem we all wind up with is what? Our solutions don't work. So then we try to plug in another solution. And we plug another solution. Doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work. Well, we try another solution. And we just beat ourselves to death trying to do this thing. But then when we pray to the Lord the right way, in verse 6, He gives us this inner assurance that I'm in charge. Just relax here. I am in charge. Everything's going to turn out okay. So just hold it. Now, has he changed any information? Does our computer, let's say this is 10.01 in the morning and the peace of God comes at 10.02. At 10.02, does your brain have any more information about the circumstance than it had at 10.01? All it does have is that God is in control of the circumstances. But you basically, we don't have any more data that's come into our computers other than we have this, we have omniscience, omnipotence, we know that God is sovereign, we know that God is omnipotent, we know He loves us, And we know he never gets tired. And we know he's loyal to his promises because he never changes. So it's like we remember things. It's not new information because we already knew that. We just had to be reminded of that for the 18,000th time. But once that all that knowledge, all that memory comes charging in, there's a transfer, if you think about it. There's a transfer that goes from an autonomous mind that tries to center itself and will not accept anything that it can't see a solution. I've got to see the solution. Well, as long as I've got to see the solution, I'm not going to get it. So I have to come over here and trust the Lord, and at this point I have to retreat off of that position. I have to say, well, I can't see the solution. I have to confess, I don't have any more information now than I had a minute ago. Except, I now remember that he's sovereign and he's in charge and he's controlled. Do I know what he's going to do in this situation? Probably not. At 10.02, at 10.03, at 10.04, 10.05, do I have still any knowledge of what God's going to do in the situation? Probably not. Well, then what's the difference? The peace of God that exceeds my capacity to think it through. His peace is out beyond my computer program. And I just sit there, I run the computer, I don't turn my head off, But yet, I know while I'm working in the middle of this mess that it's not a hopeless wreck and the outcome of it doesn't depend on Charlie Clough figuring it all out. Because he's already figured it out. And it's already working together for good. So there's an example of the eternal distinction between the Creator and the creature. And it doesn't change in the person of Christ. In His humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ operated this way. That's what we're going to see in the next chapter. That Jesus Christ was the test pilot. Now, one of the things... He doesn't want 
puts a round in there and he shoves it in and detonates the trigger, he doesn't want the gun to blow up and blow his head away, which is 18 inches away from the 120 millimeter round when it goes off. So that's why you torture things. You test them. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, throughout his humanity and during his life, he operated just like this. It was the first time in history that Satan ever saw a human being walk in the middle of his domain and pull it off perfectly. First time in history. Here was a perfect man who operated by faith, who Satan said, nobody can do that. Well, somebody did do that. And nobody from that point on, after Christ got finished his life, no one of us can argue it can't be done. Because he did it. It's an irrefutable fact of history. He trusted the Lord, his Father, at every point in time. He gave a living test demonstration of what a human being can do when filled with the Holy Spirit. So, the eternal distinction is important. Otherwise, you erase the whole issue of the, Christ, the life of Christ. Life of Christ can't be applied to us if we don't maintain the fact that during his humanity, he had all the same constraints, humanly speaking, you and I have, and he operated by faith, trusting the Father and his attributes. Now we come to the second implication that's found on page 44, and that is that the, crea- the creature, the creator, God, can never meet us more fully than he has in the person of Jesus Christ. That means Joseph Smith, it means Mohammed, it means Confucius, it means all the teachers of the religions of the world. There's not one of them that we can look into their face and see more of God than we can look into the face of Jesus Christ and see God. Jesus Christ is the final and most complete revelation, period. No need for any more prophets. No need for any more new religions. People get an itch for a new religion have basically turned their back on the person of Jesus Christ. Because if they accepted Christ and realized who Jesus Christ was and is, they wouldn't need a new religion. So, the second implication is that God doesn't show up later on as a Martian. He doesn't have to show up as some intergalactic visitor because whatever it is, who is made in God's image? Somebody out in Galaxy 52 or Adam and Eve that were made in the Garden of Eden on planet Earth? Well, Adam and Eve, the human race, is made in God's image. And so, Jesus Christ, who is not a Martian or a Venusian or from Galaxy 52, he is a human being from planet Earth and he represents the most complete picture of God that is possible in the entire universe. And this carries implications for the centrality of planet Earth and the history of planet Earth. And why, when we talk about we want to find extraterrestrial life and go through the whole nine yards, it's actually turning back on the most phenomenal planet. I mean, if there were creatures out there, you know what they'd be doing if they knew God? We want to find out about planet Earth. He visited there. He never visited out here. What's the matter with those idiots on planet Earth? They think we got the news. They got the news. What the heck did they do with it? Buried it? Yeah, we did. Did a good job. So, the second implication of the hypostatic union is because when God chose to incarnate himself, he didn't incarnate himself as a falcon like the Egyptian gods. 
He didn't encounter him, uh, in, in, uh, incarnate himself as a lion like the Sphinx. He incarnated himself, not zoologically, he incarnated himself humanly. The third implication um, the third implication is that history, historical experience, has eternal ramifications. History, and we can put in a parenthesis, my personal life goes on record forever. That's a scary thought. You know, every one of us is writing a record that we can't ever change. Every thought, every word, every deed being recorded. We have created our own histories. Nobody twisted our arms. We've done it. Now, in the Bible, let's look at Christ's personal history. Jesus Christ in His personal life created righteousness. He generated perfect righteousness. And part of his personal righteousness, his absolute righteousness, includes the work that he did on the cross. And the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross earned him scars on his body. So if you turn in the New Testament to John chapter 20, verse 27... This is His resurrection body that He will live in forever and ever. So the Lord Jesus has the body in John chapter 20 that He has when you and I will meet Him. And you'll notice that that body has marks. He said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see My hands. And reach here your hand and put it into My side and stop unbelieving, but start believing. Now, you'll notice that this is not his natural body, not his mortal body, but this is his resurrection body. So, the resurrection body carries the marks of the cross. So, while Jesus Christ produced in his personal history absolute righteousness, he carries the scars of becoming the sin for you and me. And he carries those scars forever and ever and ever in his body. That's why in Revelation it says, and we looked at the throne, and what did we see on the throne? A lamb like it had been slain. The marks still are there. So what does that mean? Here's what it means about history. It means that history is very real. It's not a dream. The Eastern religions think of history as a dream. We wish it were a dream. In our bad moments, we wish it were a dream. Sometimes Christians get so depressed they want to kill themselves and end it because we want to do away with this painful history. But the history has already been written. We can go ahead and kill ourselves. That's part of our history then. And so this is why Paul in 2 Corinthians says something. And if you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he builds on this idea that history is so very, very important. We do things with our lives some of it, we wish we didn't, but we've done it, and it's all there. 
Now we have to go back and think through something. Remember this slide? We talked about good and evil. Now history is full of good and evil. Now the pagan idea, their problem is they've got good and evil forever and ever. Can't ever get rid of it. So they can reincarnate and reincarnate and reincarnate, come back as a bug, a cow, a human being, a rock or whatever, and they're still living in a good and evil world. But the Christian says that we go through history good and evil, our lives are good and evil, but the problem is that this good and evil is not sufficient to dwell forever in the good God. God is good. He is righteous. He is holy. He cannot tolerate that and will not tolerate that. And therefore, eternal history cannot have evil in it. Well, then how, if we have personal history, is our personal history corrected, the evil separated away from it, so that we can enjoy fellowship with God forever and ever? That doesn't happen automatically. It's got something we have yet to come in our lives. And that thing is called judgment. And it's that judgment we all have to face. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5... This is Christians now. Not talking about a judgment for salvation, but a judgment to separate the good and the evil. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Please notice, not the judgment seat of the Father. It doesn't say the judgment seat of the Holy Spirit. It says the judgment seat of Christ. Now, let's think about it. Hypostatic union. Why is the word Christ used there? God and man. Why is the judgment committed to the second person of the Trinity, not the third or the first? What is true of the second person of the Trinity now that we just learned? Became man. And in becoming man, what did he do? He lived personal history. He has become, in judicial terms, what? Trial by our peers. So it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the judge, not the Father. Because we, it is a judgment of a fellow human being. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, Paul says, and he's talking to Christians here, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, we also made manifest to God. And I hope we're made manifest to your consciousness. So it's a warning to Christians. You can find it in 1 Corinthians 3 and other passages. This is the judgment of believers before the Lord Jesus. Why is it necessary? So that the evil parts of our human history will be acknowledged as evil. We don't know. We don't know the half of it. We get so proud, oh yeah, I'm a good, good believer. But the depths of our own sin, we know not. And this is what Paul said. He didn't even know all the things that are evil in his life. He knew some of them and the things what God, the Holy Spirit, brings to our mind, we confess those and move on. But somewhere in eternity, we want a true perspective on who we were. What were we all about in our historical moment? And we don't want to smell garbage all the time. So the judgment is, takes care of this and somehow the Lord deals with that evil, purges it aside, so that which is good, done faithfully as unto the Lord, not unto men, but unto the Lord, that remains. And that's what doesn't get burned up, except 1 Corinthians 3. So the third implication is that history has eternal consequences. It's not a dream. 
Now, finally, let's conclude by turning Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. And we'll just be very brief with that. Our time is running out. And it's an introduction, basically, to the doctrine of the Trinity. We're going to start next week. Paul says, he warns believers that they not be taken captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So what he's saying here, and now we can appreciate verse 8 better, can't we? How many years did it take to get to Council of Chalcedon? What was the date of the Chalcedon? 451. 400 years. What was the church doing in 400 years? What were they re-examining? The basic categories of thought itself. Basic categories. And what Paul says here, do not be philosophically deceived. Do not construct your basic categories and then try to fit the Bible on top of them. Do away with the basic categories, accept the Scripture, and derive your basic categories from the Scriptures. Completely reverse it. And it took 400 years for the church to reverse it. And part of the reversal was the realization that God is three and God is one. And if you look in the handout, um, this is a difficult, difficult handout. Um, next week, the handout will be more classical, will be into the Bible passage in the Trinity. This is going to be real strange to some of you. But for those, some of others of you who have struggled with some of these questions, I think a light will turn on. If you'll notice on page 2 and 3, I deal with the two primary tools of man, language and logic. And what, if you'll read there, I'm going to touch on, and believe me, I'm only touching on it, is that the logic and language, which people always say, oh, the Trinity is a contradiction. What we're going to show is exactly the opposite. If you don't have a triune God, you can't have any logic whatsoever. And you can't even speak. It's actually, every time we say a sentence, we are affirming that we have a structure that can only be derived from the Trinity. The language and logic are built on top of the authority of Scripture. First the Scripture, then language and logic. What we get it backwards is we think in terms of language and logic, and then we'll see if the Scripture meets our little test. We'll reverse that. We'll show that the test can't be set up until first you start with the Scripture. So it's a powerful, soul-shaking uh, effort to see this through. But it's all derived from when the church did its work with the Trinity. Father, we thank You for this evening. We thank You for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, for Your magnificent plan of salvation. And may You make us memori- memori- remember this day to day that we not get so totally buried under the details of life that we can't stick our heads up out of the mess and take a good look at the big picture and realize that you are omniscient, you are omnipotent, that we can have the peace of God that passes all understanding, not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, but only because we look up and you are there. So teach our hearts these truths in Christ's name. Amen. We have a few uh, minutes here for some question and answer, if we can get some questions. Yes. A question before Debbie? God. <laughs> Break precedent here. <laughs>
question about works, the miraculous works done uh, in the New Testament era by disciples uh, that approximated in magnitude uh, some of the miracles that Lord Jesus Christ himself did, and whether that, in fact, uh, is normative for the church age. Um, the weight of the New Testament is, if you, if you, if you sit down with a piece of paper and look at the admonition in the epistles, just listing every... Uh, there was a, a lady that I knew once that did that. I uh, had the patience of Job. Went through every single imperative verb in the New Testament epistles. So from Pentecost on, what is God telling us? What is he commanding? Find any set of verses in there that tell us to do miracles. It's amazingly absent. This does not mean that those miracles can't happen or aren't happening in, in missionary situations oftentimes. Um, it's rather that the weight and direction and momentum of those New Testament imperatives are for our personal trust and obedience because that's harder for us to do than pull off the miracles. Um, it really is, and we all kind of know that. Um, that's the center of gravity of the New Testament, thrust. The miracles happen when they happen. And we leave those to the Lord. Um, many of the miracles in the New Testament were what we call sign miracles in the apostolic age. And there are clear texts in the epistles that view those, that era as, as kind of a, a sign era that is coming to an end at the time that many of the New Testament epistles are being written. For example, in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, if you look at the verb tenses, the author of Hebrews, whoever he was, is saying that, um, and apparently he was a second generation believer, because he said, we became to faith through others who bore witness with signs and miracles. And it's past tense. So he looks back on that era as a time of signs and miracles. Again, not to say, we're not circumscribing, saying God can't do it, God won't do it, it's rather what is the normative pattern that we see. And remember that Greeks seek wisdom and Jews seek a sign. And a lot of the sign miracles that you see in the New Testament are in what culture? It's in the Jewish culture. Because of what? Because of the profile the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. He was fulfilling these, these signs. Uh, 
Um, so, by tapping into God's attributes in verses like Isaiah 40, that has more to do with everyday Christian living than it does with the firecracker miracles. It has to do with the fact that day after day we get tired and day after day we forget and day after day we need a kick in the pants to remember who our God is and what the basics are. Um, over the years, you know, sometimes you get involved in all these little details of this and details and that. It's always helped my sanity to, to back off every once in a while, strip everything down to utter simplicity, and, and just sit and review the attributes of God. Try it sometime. You know, just think. Just turn off the TV, turn off the radio. If you can't find a quiet place in your house, go in the bathroom or something, turn on the shower. But go someplace where at least for five minutes you can think through God is sovereign. Pause. What does that mean? It means he works all things after the council of And then talk to yourself. Does God's sovereignty mean, what does it mean in this situation? Does it mean that he's in total control of this thing? Even when the stuff blows up in my face? Yeah, because even the pieces that are blowing up in his face are under his control. And then you say to yourself, and God is holy and righteous. Well, I, got, I just got faked out royally. I got deceived. I got in this business contract and it's all evil. And I really got the short end of the stick here. And God is righteous. And God is holy. Is this evil that's crushing in on me right now, is this so powerful it's going to win ultimately? No. Because God is righteous. God is love. God loves me. Human love comes and goes. We're weak. We're fragile. And the opposite of love is not hatred in Scripture. The opposite of love is actually a kind of a fear. And you can see that because you can't ever release yourself to give to people if you're afraid of your own personal security and safety. As long as you're afraid of security, your security and safety, you're not going to be relaxed enough to love anybody. So, is God afraid of his personal safety and security? Absolutely not. So that means he's free to love on a scale and a quality that we can't have. So our human love is a frail, finite version of his. And it just helps us once in a while to set everything aside and think about how God loves us. Can you cite things that show that God loves us? Can you cite things from the Scripture that says, yeah, God loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. What does the Bible say? Say some things about the events that we studied, for example. God is incomprehensibly knowledgeable. He says in Isaiah 40, my counsel is beyond you. He says to Job, remember he comes to Job and he asks him the 68 questions or whatever it is. I think somebody counted them up and uh, gives them a big quiz. What's the object of the quiz? Job, you don't know what you're talking about. So just kiss it off. Forget it. Shut up and sit down. Take a break. And, and then he, listen to me. And I, he says, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Hey, Job, you try any of those things, buddy? No. Well, then who knows what's going on around here? And it just is a relief. And you'll find yourself, your blood pressure starts lowering and, and you start getting a little more stable. 
And all it is is a simple basic exercise of taking six or seven of God's attributes and thinking about them in five or ten minutes. It's just a neat time to break. Um, very good exercise to do because it focuses us, keeps us focused. And that's what this is. And the Lord Jesus Christ was the example of that. And that's why in the life of Christ you read about what did he do in the morning so often. He'd go out and pray. He had a busy life. Uh, some people have said that if you take the days, and I think there are only 17 days in the life of Christ in the New Testament that we know about, and you count up the number of things, arguments, discussions, preachings, healing sessions that he pulled off and whatever those days I'm not sure it's 17 but it's some very small number of days that we have and you log the number of things that the Lord Jesus Christ did in those I'll say 20 or 30 days that the New Testament gives us insight into and it's absolutely amazing you know what this guy have a diary a, a scheduler he did it all without a palm pilot I mean how did he do this stuff he did it because he had everything fit in its place it just, he just must have been a very organized person, but he did so um, perfectly knowledgeable and he handled interruptions in his life, which I never handled very well. He handled interruptions in his life like, oh yeah, I know that. Nathan comes to him and says, yeah, Nathan, I saw you under the tree a while back. Tell you all, tell you all about you. I know what you named me. And, and he was able to do this. So that's the challenge and that's why I've spent so many weeks on this hypostatic union. It's not just theology for the sake of theology here. This sets us up to understand what goes on in the life of Christ and the death of Christ. So we realize that that, because the four Gospels are in the New Testament to give us a picture, and, and if you don't think about this, you get it wrong. You know, the four Gospels aren't there to show us things about Jesus that can't be true now in our lives. Obviously, the Lord Jesus, some things can't be changed. We're not going to die for the sins of the world. But how he handled himself, how he did these things, obviously impacted the apostles who wrote the New Testament. So he was the model. He was the test pilot. He was the guy that showed how the indwelling Holy Spirit operates in true humanity. But you see, if we're faked out and we really don't know and aren't clear that he is undiminished deity and true humanity, united one person forever without confusion... We're going to misinterpret it because here's how a lot of Christians read the New Testament. Well, Jesus was God. I mean, after all, he didn't, he, you know, I'm not God. You can't, you know, I can't live that life. Only God can live that life. Well, Jesus was also true humanity. So we can't argue that way. And it kind of jerks you around a little bit and say, whoa, I've got, got to read the life of Jesus a little bit through a different light here. He was true humanity. And he was tired. He had to eat. He felt hunger. He felt pain. All the things that we feel. This is God walking on earth. And you see what's so magnificent about this, folks, is there's not another religion that comes close. Think about it. As we've said so many times, Allah never gets his fingernails dirty. Allah never got hungry. Allah never walked around tired. But our God did. So who would you rather talk to? Who would you rather have judge you? You see, it's a much more comfortable situation if you get the prime truth straight. So, are there any other uh, questions? I'd like to talk about. Mm-hmm. 
It goes back, Debbie, to the question is whether our sins are removed from us at the point of salvation or the point of judgment, bema seat kind of thing. It gets back to the fact that salvation, the salvation package and program of God has phases to it. When we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are totally justified. The absolute righteousness of Christ is credited to our God. That's a Protestant Reformation. And we wouldn't even have the audacity to trust God for one promise were it not for the fact that we rest in the fact that we're perfectly acceptable to Him legally and in a relationship. However, we authentically know that we sin. We know we're forgiven. We confess our sins if they're just. We're not talking at the Bema seat about legal status before God. That's why the Bema Seat has nothing to do with unbelievers. There's, there's many judgments in the Bible. When you think of God shall judge the quick and the dead in the Apostles' Creed, keep in mind that's a summary of, a, of many different judgments. There's the judgment of nations in Matthew 24. There's the Bema Seat in 1 Corinthians 3. There's the great white throne in, in Revelation 20. I mean, you name it. The, the churches, temporal judgment on churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So there's all kinds of judgments in the Scripture. But... Talking about what I was talking about, point there is that we have a finite understanding of ourselves. We have a sinfully suppressed misunderstanding of our understanding of ourselves. And we go into death carrying that with us. It's not that God doesn't honor his salvation with us before we wouldn't be doing any acceptable works were we not empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we have a relationship from the point of salvation. What happens at the Bema Seat, according to 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, is that he, some way, brings to our consciousness our whole life's biography. And we realize what we have produced and what we haven't produced. And that's what's scary about it. Because probably we're going to realize the thousands and thousands of opportunities we had and we blew it. And how you reconcile that and how he deals with that so we won't be depressed for eternity, I don't know. But it just says he deals with it. It goes, it's over with. First Corinthians 3 warns us that if we build human good, good of the flesh, you know, I'm laboring the energy of the flesh and I'm not trusting the Lord, I'm just doing it because I want to do it and look good. All that stuff burned up. All that human good debris out. And why is that? I think it's because when we dwell forever and ever, it's precisely because he wants an intimate relationship with us and he wants us to have an intimate relationship that he's got to purge the garbage out. So that when we have an eternal relationship, there's no hidden skeletons in our closet, as it were. All the skeletons are out and burned. And we realize who we are, what we are. We give thanks for... Um, his work in our lives. Our cup is full. It's just that some people's cup is bigger than other people's cup. And, it's, and we have to remember, the Bible does not project a socialist picture of the kingdom of God. It's not a communist state where everybody's equal. See, that's, that's, a, that's where we've allowed communism and socialism to so infiltrate the church. 
We think somehow equality uh, is, is mandatory to have good. That's not true. Jesus says there are degrees of reward, degrees of quantity of eternal life. And that results from our own choices that we've made in our lives. And that's what's so sobering about it. So it is not due to the eternal consequences of sin. What these are, are healing the memories, um, letting us view ourselves fully for who we are. Because we really don't know who we are. Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. You can go to a psychoanalyst for 50 years and pay $80 an hour and go bankrupt and still not know who you are. We can't. Paul said he didn't know who he was. Paul said there are things that I don't know about my life and I, I, I put it in the Lord's hands. I don't know. Find out someday. So it's finding out what our lives are all about so we can get on and enjoy Him for eternity. And it, that's got to happen because there's got to be resolution both in the legal area of coming into a relationship with God and then in the production area of what have we produced. It might be like this. Imagine owning land like a farm. You have title to the farm. It's all yours. So are you a farmer? Yeah, you're a farmer. Since when? Since you got title to the land. What's that? When I got saved. But then, because the farm ultimately is owned by God, he wants to know, what have you produced by way of crops? Now, we might produce a good crop, a large crop, or a small crop. And as different farmers are going to produce different crops off the ground. And there has to be a recognition of that somewhere. So it gets back to what's real. What's authentic? What's the real thing? And that's what has to, it comes up for adjustment at the Bema Seat. Well, again, I think the model is to look at read through the New Testament epistles and see where the center of gravity is. Paul mentions the Bema seat, what, in three or four places? Now, what does that say? It seems to tell me that it was on his mind from time to time. But you don't see it as some overarching thing. And, and I think the reason you can't is because what are you going to do about it? How do you produce anything that's worthwhile in life but by looking at the Lord? So you look at the Lord and trust Him for the results. You don't know the results of your own good works. You know, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol with Scrooge and so forth. I mean, that's a good illustration because it comes out of a Christian worldview is that, uh, remember going through the what-ifs in The Christmas Carol saying that he had this dream and, and all these things happened and then he realized that your life is a ripple and it ripples out and you don't even realize it and were it not for the dream Scrooge would never have realized what his life was doing to other people and I think that's part of the Bema Seat we'll realize what our life did to other people and where it impacted them and so forth we can't know that now so you, you live your life as under the Lord and move on okay well next week we'll take 10 deep breaths uh, with the Doctrine of the Trinity